The passage this morning is from Luke 18, 9 through 14. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Michael Scott, who is uh, played by Steve Carell in that uh, very popular TV show, The Office. Um, Michael Scott is the uh, office manager of Dunder Mifflin in Scranton, Pennsylvania. And in season three, in one of the episodes, he is going to interview for a, uh, a job in corporate headquarters in New York City. And uh, he goes to interview, and the, um, David Wallace, who's the CFO of Dunder Mifflin, uh, starts to <clears throat> the interview with him, and, and, and here's what ensues. David Wallace says, so let me ask you a question right off the bat. What do you think are your greatest strengths as a manager? Michael Scott replies, why don't I tell you what my greatest weaknesses are? I work too hard. I care too much. And sometimes I can be too invested in my job. David Wallace answers, okay, and your strengths? Well, my weaknesses are actually strengths. Oh, yes, very good, thank you. Actress Sophia Loren, in an article in the USA Today, said this, I'm not a practicant, but I pray. I read the Bible. It's the most beautiful book ever written. I should go to heaven. Otherwise, it's not nice. I haven't done anything wrong. My conscience is very clean. My soul is as white as those orchids over there, and I should go straight, straight to heaven. In his book, uh, the freedom of self-forgetfulness, Tim Keller describes his upbringing, and he, he describes this that would transpire with his mom. Uh, when he was at school, his mother would say things like, honey, you ought to join the chess club. And he would say, mom, I have no interest in the chess club. She'd say, but, but son, it would look good on your college application. And then he said that that would ensue over and over, and so it would be they, they, uh, they feed the homeless and the hungry downtown on Saturday mornings. Do, would you like to do that? And he would say, Mom, I hate that kind of thing. She'd say, but honey, it would look great on your college application. And he, and he tells the story of several of these encounters, and he says, while he was in school, he did a lot of things he just didn't care to do. That he was building a college application that, as he would say, he was simply putting together a self-esteem resume. Self-righteousness, how do you deal with it? How do you deal with your self-righteousness? How do you overcome it? How do you understand it? We're gonna look at this parable at the cause of self-righteousness, the result of it, and the cure for it. First, the cause of self-righteousness. There's two causes that appear 
in the Pharisee's prayer here. And the first cause surfaces in verse 11. Look at it. God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Now, two emphases you note in this prayer, the word I and the emphasis on it, and then the phrase not like. And so what this Pharisee is doing is he's taking full credit for not being an adulterer, a robber, a tax collector like other people. Right? He's worked hard. He's made good moral choices. He's been wise and not foolish. Right? And that's why he is not like other people. And we see here it reveals the first cause of self-righteousness, and that is not understanding the restraining grace of God. The restraining grace of God. What do I mean by this? Jesus addresses it in Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount. And he addresses it at two times when he's making the connection between outward visible sin and inward invisible sin. The first example is in verses 21 to 22, and he says, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. You see, Jesus is saying the, the outward visible act of murder begins with the inward invisible act of anger in the heart. And that someone that murders and someone that has anger in the heart towards someone is dealing with the same sin, albeit different expressions of it. Second example, verse 27 to 28. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Again, Jesus says the outward visible act of Adultery begins with the invisible inward act of lust in the heart. It's the same sin. Both are guilty of the same sin. Jesus actually makes that explicit here and says the person who has lusted in the heart has already committed adultery, that it's the same sin. So the Pharisee in this parable says, what? I am glad I'm not like other men. There's the problem. Because the reality is the Pharisee is exactly like the tax collector that's next to him in the temple. Right? Tax collectors in that day, they, they were Jews that worked for the Roman government, and they, 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 they collected taxes above and beyond what the government required, and they stashed the rest. So they were greedy. They were robbers. They were thieves. The reality is that Jesus, and we saw it a couple chapters ago, Jesus calls out the Pharisees for being lovers of money, for being hoarders of money, for not being generous. And so if, if, if we could extrapolate the Sermon on the Mount, it would look something like this. You have heard that it was said, you shall not steal. But I tell you that anyone who loves money and doesn't give it away generously is a robber and a thief. You see, the Pharisee may have never stolen anything like this tax collector, but the Pharisee was a hoarder of money. He wasn't generous. And so Jesus says they're in the same place. The Pharisee was like the tax collector. See, you may have never murdered someone. You, you may have never committed adultery. You may have never stolen something. But every person in this room, if you haven't done one of those, every person has been angry in the heart at someone. 
Every person has lusted after someone, and every person has failed to be generous. Right? Jesus reduces it down to the same level and the same seed. And the only reason that your anger, lust, and lack of generosity hasn't progressed to murder, adultery, and stealing is the restraining grace of God. Now, what do I mean by that? Let me give you an example. Consider two children. One child grows up in a, in a poor, violent neighborhood. This child grows up in an environment where the way you deal with your anger is to pull out a gun and shoot somebody or to hurt somebody. And so this child grows up and has older siblings that he watches that join a gang that teach and model this and watches the older siblings get angry and hurt someone and, and maybe even shoot someone. And this child, by the time he gets to his late teenage years, gets angry pulls out a gun and shoots someone and ends up on the six o'clock news. Second child, born and raised in a more wealthy, suburban, safe neighborhood where he's taught that when you're angry, you go to your room, you count to 10, you cool off, right? Violence, hurting someone is just an unacceptable option when you get angry. And so this child grows up and by his late teenage or young adult years, Right? deals with his anger, maybe some harsh words here and there, but never hurts anybody, never murders someone. Now, the child that was born into the poor, violent neighborhood did not choose to be born in that neighborhood or to that family, nor did the child born in the safe suburban neighborhood who was taught very differently choose to be born into that family. See, the only reason that that child that was born into a safe neighborhood and family that didn't teach violence as, a, as a, a result of anger, the only reason is the restraining grace of God, right? The, the family of origin, where that child grew up. See, so we, you understand that if you find yourself not murdering, not committing adultery, right, there is a, there's a restraining grace of God, and it might be your family of origin, might be the environment you grew up in, but that's the grace of God, and apart from that grace, you would do those things. You say, I'm, I'm, I'll, I'll dial it in a little closer to what we're seeing in our culture right now. The only reason that you're, you're not an adulterer, if you're not, or the only reason that you're not a homosexual, if you're not, the only reason that you're not a person of transgender, if you're not, is the restraining grace of God. Apart from the grace of God, you are capable of doing the worst, the most heinous act of sin that you may hate. And if you don't understand that, that first cause of self-righteousness, you will be self-righteous like the Pharisee. Second cause of self-righteousness, it surfaces in verse 12. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. So the Pharisee here is, is not only boasting of his righteous deeds, but he's boasting how he's gone above and beyond. Right? Old Testament law prescribed one fast a year on the Day of Atonement. And beyond that, it was voluntary. So the Pharisees said, well, we're gonna do it twice a week on Mondays and Thursdays. And then the second part, I give a tithe of all that I get. You know, if a Pharisee went to the store and bought produce, he would tithe on that. Even though the, the, the grower has already tithed on that produce, the Pharisee would go above and beyond to say, look at what I'm doing. I'm going above and beyond the law. And the prophet Isaiah 
speaks into these outward righteous deeds that we see with the Pharisee is marked by inward pride and inward arrogance. Isaiah 64, 6. All of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. Now, what does that mean? That even the good things we do, even the good deeds that we do are laden with selfish, sinful motives. And what we see here, the the second cause of self-righteousness is not understanding the pervasiveness of sin. And in not understanding the pervasiveness of sin, having blind spots and not being able to see our sin accurately. There was a, uh, a study that was done by a couple of researchers at the University of Toronto and James Madison University. Now listen, this was not a religious study, which makes this all the more remarkable because it just paints a picture of what the Bible teaches about the human condition. But listen to this. Uh, the study was called, listen to this title, Cognitive Sophistication Intelligence does not attenuate the bias blind spot. And the point was, the conclusion was, we cut ourselves more slack than we cut other people, right? Not a huge surprise. One of the writers that, that looked at this study and was writing on it, he claims that we have bias blind spots because there's a, mis- a mismatch in how we evaluate others and how we evaluate ourselves. Listen to what he says. When considering the irrational choices of a stranger, for instance, we are forced to rely on how they behave. We see their biases from the outside, which allows us to glimpse their errors. However, when assessing our own bad choices, we tend to engage in elaborate introspection. We study our motivations and search for relevant reasons. We lament our mistakes to therapists and ruminate on the beliefs that may have led us astray. It gives a great example, right? If you find yourself driving crazy in traffic and maybe cutting somebody off, what's the reason for that? You're late for a meeting, right? You're late for an important meeting. When someone else drives crazy and cuts you off in traffic, what's the reason for it? He's a jerk. There's no other reason, right? You see, we're, we don't evaluate others as we evaluate ourselves. That's the, that's the point. And he goes on to say, our our biased blind spots are largely unconscious, which means they remain invisible to self-analysis and resistant to intelligence. In other words, being smarter won't help you figure out your junk. That was the the end of the study. That's what Jesus said when he said, "Take take the log out of your own eye before you take the speck out of your brother's eye. That's what he's talking about. Right, that we have this, that self-righteousness is caused by one, not understanding the restraining grace of God that you're not as bad as you could be. And if God removed his grace, you could do the worst of the worst. Number two is that sin is pervasive. And we don't understand that, and so we create these blind spots. Those are the causes of self-righteousness. Let's look at the the result of self-righteousness. Look at verse nine. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Now, the word and here, is a, it's a causal statement. It means that if you're gonna trust in yourself for your own righteousness or build your own righteousness, the result of that will be that you will hold others in contempt. Now, some translations say look down on others, which is true. The word here actually means to despise. It's very strong language, right, that you will despise others. Now, here's the question, why? Why? 
Why does self-righteousness result in us looking down on others or, or hating others? And the answer is that our, our attempts or our self-righteousness is an attempt to fill the deep emptiness and insecurity and inadequacy that we feel inside. Self-righteousness is an attempt to elevate yourself over others so that you feel better about yourself. And the way to feel better about yourself, if you can't elevate yourself, what do you do? Just lower somebody else so that there's a gap so that you can feel better about yourself. If you're going to build your own righteousness, you have no choice but to do it at the expense of others. One pastor was describing how he thought that he was done with judgmentalism and self-righteousness, right? Thought he had conquered that. So he, he did a little test to see if his conclusion was right. And he decided for a week to, like with a journal, to really write down all his judgments towards others. <laughs> and, and this is what he found. I watch the news and condemn those idiotic people who do such things. Most reality TV shows are full of people I can judge as sinful, er ignorant, stupid, arrogant, or childish. I get in my car and drive and find a, a host of inept drivers who should have flunked their driving test. And I throw in a little condemnation on our Department of Public Safety for good measure. At the store, I complain to myself about the lack of organization that makes it impossible to find what I'm looking for. All the while being tortured with Muzak. Who picks that music anyway? I stand in the shortest line, which I judge is way too long. Because look, people, it says 10 items or less, and I count more than that in three of your baskets. What's wrong with you people? And why can't that teenage checker what is she wearing? Focus and work so I can get out of here. The point is that we do it all the time. We judge others, right? And we, we, we look down on others to put ourselves in a better light. And the greater the insecurity and the greater the emptiness, the more severe the looking down on others becomes, the more severe the contempt becomes. And there is this, there's this progression of self-righteousness. It starts with just looking down on someone else. It progresses to, to hating someone else or despising them. And at the worst, it progresses to hurting someone or killing someone. The Holocaust and any other act of genocide that we've seen in history is a result of self-righteousness. It starts with a seed in the heart of I'm better than that person and the greater the emptiness, and the greater the insecurity, and the greater the inadequacy, the, the more severe I move towards lowering that person, ultimately to get rid of that person. Take, take racism. You know, we're, many people are shocked in our country of what we're seeing with racism. What's going on? Didn't we get over this? Why are we seeing this resurgence of racism? The answer is racism will always be around as long as there's self-righteousness in the heart, which that's gonna be until Jesus returns because racism is a result of self-righteousness. You see, again, the greater the emptiness, the greater the insecurity, the more desperate the heart gets to elevate itself, which means it will choose anything possible to create separation, even if it's skin color. 
even if it's skin color. And so all the national anthem protests and all that's going on in our country that has us confused, at the heart of that is self-righteousness that's spinning out of control. And the only answer, you know, all the protests in the world, and it's wrong, and it's, it's horrible, and it's evil, but the answer is the gospel for the human heart to get rid of the self-righteousness or to, to fill so that that self-righteousness is filled in Christ. And that takes us to our third point. What's the cure for self-righteousness? Look at the tax collector's prayer in verse 13. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Now, this was a tax collector, as I said earlier. That meant he was a Jew who worked for the Roman government he collected the taxes required and he added on top of that so he could stuff his pockets. So they were notoriously known as traitors, as robbers, as thieves, as greedy. And apparently this tax collector came to a point of conviction. He was convicted over his sin. He was overwhelmed with his guilt. His conscience was, was stricken. Now, Old Testament, Leviticus 6, Leviticus 6 talks about those that, that gain wealth by deception, that sin by, by stealing with deception. And it required a full restitution to those that were wronged or stolen from, and it required the bringing of a guilt offering. And what we see here with this tax collector, who was a Jew, is that he was, he was so disconnected from God, so disconnected from his, you know, the, the spiritual, spirituality that he couldn't even bring himself to go to the altar to talk to the priest about a guilt offering. He couldn't even bring an offering. And he was so disconnected from God, he didn't know how to pray. Notice his prayer. There's no eloquence of words. There's no adoration and thanksgiving and flowery language. It's simply, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. He brings no offering. <laughs> he brings no merit. He brings no claim. He brings no comparison. He brings nothing to the table but his sin and simply ask God to forgive him and turn away his divine wrath. You know, we sing it from time to time, one of our hymns, Rock of Ages. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. One author puts it this way. Christianity turns all our religious instincts on their heads. The ancient Greeks told us to be moderate by knowing our inclinations. The Romans told us to be strong by ordering our lives. Buddhism tells us to be disillusioned by annihilating our consciousness. Hinduism tells us to be absorbed by merging our souls. Islam tells us to be submissive by subjecting our wills. Agnosticism tells us to be at peace by ignoring our doubts. Moralism tells us to be good by discharging our obligations. Only the gospel tells us to be free by acknowledging our failure. Christianity is the unreligion because it is the one faith whose founder tells us to bring not our doing, but our need. And what is God's answer to this sinner, the tax collector? Look at verse 14. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. 
For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. This tax collector left the temple and went home justified. He came and brought nothing. He went home with everything. It's the greatest exchange, the most unfair, but the most beautiful exchange we see in the scriptures. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, for our sake he made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him, in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. That is the offer of the gospel. You bring your sin to the table. That's it. Not your efforts, not excuses, not merits, not claims, not comparisons to the next person. You bring your sin, and Jesus takes your sin, and he gives you his righteousness. And when you have the righteousness of Christ, you are exalted which means that you're honored by God the Father in the same way that the risen Christ, his son, is honored. That you have the righteousness of Christ. And once you have that, the need to build your own righteousness is gone. The need to compare yourself to others is gone. The need to lower others and lift yourself up is gone because you're filled, you're honored by the God of the universe as one who is in Christ, with Christ's righteousness. I close with this quote. The litmus test of whether or not you understand the gospel is what you do when you fail. Do you run from God and go try to clean yourself up a bit before you come back into the throne room? Or do, or do you approach the throne of grace with confidence? If you don't approach the throne of grace with confidence, you don't understand the gospel. You are most offensive to God when you come to him with all of your efforts, when you're still trying to earn what's freely given. Let's pray. Father, would you forgive us for our pride? Would you forgive us for looking down our nose, for holding others in contempt, even hatred? And we do it all the time, in the grocery store, at work, as we watch the six o'clock news. And would you tear our self-righteousness out of us? Would you help us to understand the only reason that we are not doing what we abhor in others is because of your restraining grace? Would you help us to see the pervasiveness of our sin, that even our good deeds are filled with sinful motives? And would all of this bring us to our knees that the only thing we bring to you is our need, is our need for forgiveness, our need for grace. I pray, Father, for those here that maybe have never done that, have never come to you needy, who maybe have always, always come to you with what they've done, presenting their best. And this morning, would you bring us all to our knees, bringing before you our sin and receiving the beautiful righteousness of Christ. that causes us to be honored 
by you, Father, like you honor your own son. And filled with that, would we be people that don't take from others, but give generously? As we close in worship, help us to understand our neediness and to understand the righteousness of Christ that we have by faith. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.